This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, thank you so much for coming. We'll get started here. Uh, let me pray for our time together before we start. Uh, grateful you guys are here. This is the fifth session. We're talking about who is Jesus uh, this morning. And, you know, I was thinking, man, this is one of the most important questions we could ask. But then as you look through all this material, you're like, all of these are the most important questions you could ask. So I don't know if I can say this is the most important question you could ask, but maybe you could say that. Who is Jesus is the most important question you could ask. But let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, thank you that we get to study your word this morning, that we get to look at who our Savior is, that we get to think about and contemplate and learn about who Jesus is and consider these things, not just for knowledge alone, but so that we might worship you and love you more and marvel at how you've revealed yourself to be to us. And so we are so grateful that we know Christ. Pray that this class would be a means to know him better. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I want to start with a question. And you guys can just raise your hand if uh, you'd like to answer. So in, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks this question to his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And so how would you respond to this question? Kind of cultural, or I guess our culture in general, how do you think people would say, or what do you think people would say who Jesus is? How do you think our culture would respond? He's a good teacher. Anything else? A good person, yeah. God with us, yeah. Yeah, I think culture would say most of those things. Okay, so then, then Jesus, he kind of looks at his disciples and he asks, who do you say, who do you say that I am? And so how would you respond? Just one sentence, who would you say Jesus is? If you had one sentence to describe who Christ is, what would you say? You can raise your hand again if you'd like to answer. The Son of God. Everyone's like, yeah, that, that sums it up. <laughs> yeah, he's the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to look at that question today. Who is Jesus Christ? This quote has affected me for a long time. I'm going to read it. It's a little long, but uh, I've just looked at this quote over and over again over the last few years. And I think uh, this, is, this is kind of a helpful uh, I guess, introduction to who Christ is. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. 
He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he, laid, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. So who is Jesus Christ? It's an important question. Who is this man that's affected all of human history, and why is he so important to us as Christians? Christian faith, it's really all about one person, Jesus. And if we don't understand him, we don't understand our faith, and we really don't understand God at all. So who is he? I think our statement of faith sums it up well, just to kind of jump around. This is in your booklet as well. It says, the Son of God is the second person of the Trinity. He's equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In the incarnation, he took on human nature. He is one person with two natures and became our all-sufficient Savior and the only mediator between God and man. For this Cornerstone you we're going to look at who Christ is. We're going to dissect what we mean by some of these statements in our statement of faith. And so first, I want to cover the person of the Son. This will cover the incarnation, how Jesus, he's both fully God and fully man. And some of the ways, maybe this has been confused in the past. And then second, we're going to look at the offices of the Son, which are going to cover how Jesus has fulfilled the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So kind of that's the outline of the class. First, the person of the Son, and then second, the offices of the Son. So we're going to look at the humanity of Christ first. What does it mean that Jesus is fully man? I think one of the ways that we see the Bible affirm that Jesus is fully man or put on human nature is just by the simple way that he was born. It's important to start here that Jesus really was fully man, that he was born of a woman. Just like me and you have moms, Jesus had a mom. You may recount in Matthew 1, he, he says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, they shall name him Emmanuel. So we see the same thing even in the book of Luke, how, how Luke's recounting this virgin birth, how Jesus has a human mother. I think the virgin birth, though, is, is so important. We see how salvation is ultimately from God alone. Even though he has a human mother, we see salvation is from God. You may remember in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of salvation, how God says the seed of the offspring of the woman will ultimately destroy the head of the serpent. And now we see this fulfilled in Christ, that the seed has come through the woman, ultimately Mary, 
And God fulfills his promise in Jesus Christ. The virgin birth, though, really reminds us how all of salvation is from God. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, God is saying, man didn't do this thing. I did. He does this supernatural thing for Jesus to be born through a woman to show his humanity, but born of the Holy Spirit to show his divinity. So we see the the virgin birth really uniting Jesus' full deity and full humanity. And you could think about it. How else could this have been done so clearly? I think you could say, sure, God could have made a complete human in heaven. He could have made Jesus in heaven, completely human, and then just sent him down to earth without any human parents. And he still be fully God and fully man. But I think that would have made it hard for us to understand how he really is one of us or how he really is, does have human nature. Or God could have done the, the opposite thing. He could have given him two human parents. Maybe he was born of Mary and Joseph and then just somehow imparted miraculously his divine nature. But then I think we would have really had a hard time understanding how he's divine and fully God. But instead, we see his full humanity on display and his deity together that he's born of Mary by the Holy Spirit. So that's just one example of how we see Christ being fully man. We see also how the Bible explains Jesus to be fully human by his weaknesses and limitations. Just like we are weak and have limitations, so did Jesus. Jesus had a human body. He was born a baby and had to grow up just like we do. In Luke 2, verse 40, it says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we see how his human body even needed things we need, like food and water. I love when Jesus, he's being tempted in the desert in Matthew 4 by Satan. And you may remember, it's after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And what does it say? He was hungry. I'm like, I don't understand how it doesn't say he was starving to death. That's what I think it would say if I was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. But I think it, it expresses he, he was a human. He was hungry after not eating and, and fasting for 40 days. We see how he ate and drank with his disciples and shared meals with people, just like we do as humans. He needed substance for his body. We he gets s- tired. He, gets, he sleeps a lot of Yeah, he, he's sleeping on a boat <laughs> while there's a storm around him. We see ultimately how uh, he had a human body like ours when he dies on a cross. His, his body can't live on forever. It had limitations. His heart had to stop beating When he's poked by a sword, he bleeds out. You just see all of his limitations. I think all of this reveals that Jesus, he had a real body. He had a real human nature. It wasn't fake. It didn't just look like he put a human nature on. He really put on flesh for our sake. We're told that Jesus had a human mind. Even in that Luke passage we read in in Luke chapter 2, He increased in wisdom. He had to learn how to do things. Jesus wasn't born as a baby knowing how to to read or to walk or talk or write. All of these things that we need to do as humans, he had to learn to do them as well. And I think really this is one of the most amazing things. This is just draw us to worship Christ. It's the most amazing thing about Jesus, at least from my perspective, that the God of the universe put on human flesh. He humbled himself. He left eternity past 
to have his diaper changed. I just think, how else could you be humbled by being in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit and then leaving that to put on human flesh to experience the world as we experience it? The scriptures also affirm how Jesus had human emotions. I love when Jesus he heals or he raises Lazarus from the dead in, in John 11, and he sees his friends weeping. And he's so affected by the death of his friend and how his friends are also affected by Lazarus. Even though he knows he's about to raise him from the dead, what does he do? He says, Jesus wept. It shows his compassion, his human emotion of crying, weeping at the sight of suffering. So you can see through him being born of a woman, having a human body, human emotions, human limitations, the scriptures affirm that Jesus was fully human. The only difference in his humanity is that he never sinned a single time. This is so incredible. All of his trials, all of the tribulations he faced, he never sinned. You can go to a passage like Hebrews 4.15 that tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He fully and completely was human. Not just a fake human. He was fully and completely human, yet never gave in to disobeying God even a single time. You may ask, why was his humanity essential? What, what makes him, or why did he have to put on human flesh? Why couldn't he just be our savior and be fully God? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. I just want to cover, cover a, a couple. I think first is Jesus as a human is our representative. So you can, if you have your Bible, even open up to Romans 5, verse 18. This is what it says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What, what this is talking about is in Adam, our old representative, we have all fallen into sin. Adam's one trespass led all into sin and death and condemnation. His one disobedience, as verse 19 says, many were made sinners. But by Jesus, our new representative, it says that he did one act of righteousness. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. It leads to justification for all men. So in Adam, we sin and die. We don't have access to God in Adam. But in Christ, we live and we have righteousness and we now have access to God. He's our new representative, paving the way for us to be made right. Jesus' humanity is also essential because Jesus is our substitute. This is what Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 say. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We know from even the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats, they never can take away sin. The priest would have to stand every single day making sacrifices for the people, for himself. But they weren't satisfactory substitutes. 
We as humans didn't need the blood of bulls and goats. We needed the blood of another perfect human. And that's what Jesus does. He's a perfect substitute for us. I was thinking about this word substitute, and I was like, maybe you think, or at least this is what I think, substitute is, a, is, is kind of an interesting word because it maybe denotes something bad, actually. You know, when your star quarterback gets injured, you put in your second string, you substitute for the second string quarterback, or, you know, you order something on DoorDash and you want creamy peanut butter, but the grocery store substitutes it for crunchy peanut butter. It's a tragedy, you know, or your teacher's sick and you get your substitute teacher, which just means you're doing nothing for the whole day. But I, I thought the word substitute, how amazing would it be if, you know, there's like a game of fifth graders playing basketball and you sub out one of them for Michael Jordan. Or instead of, you know, they say, hey, sorry, we're out of chicken at the grocery store. We subsid, subbed it out for filet mignon. Or maybe your science teacher is subbed out for Albert Einstein. It's way better. It's not a lesser than substitute. It's a way better substitute, a perfect substitute. And the scriptures say Jesus became fully human so he could substitute on our behalf. And it was the only trade that worked out in our favor. So it's important to see how Christ is fully man. But the scriptures also say something else about Christ. Not just that he was fully man, but he was also fully God. He was divine. And so we're going to look at now the deity of Christ. He was one person with two natures. So there's a few direct claims from scripture saying that Jesus is divine or that he's even God. You can look at John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this is verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we can see how John recognizes that Jesus is really divine. He's the Word. He was in the beginning with God, the Father, and Jesus, the Word, is God. And then even in verse 14, it says, Jesus, the Word, he put on flesh and dwelt among us. So this kind of even ties together his, his full human nature and his full divine nature. There's another passage, Philippians 2. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, this is very explicit. Jesus, he was in the form of God. He was divine. Yet in his humility, he was born in the likeness of men. He puts on human nature. So we see these passages say that he's one person with two natures. Lastly, we'll look at Colossians 1. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we see in, in, in verse 15, he's the image of God. He's divine. 
The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He has divinity. He was able to reconcile things on earth and in heaven. This explains his humanity. He's our substitute, our representative for us. Even in John 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. You may remember that same phrasing when Moses is on the mountain. God reveals himself and says, I am. I think there's more evidence in the New Testament that Jesus also possesses de- or, uh, attributes of, of deity, meaning he has things that only God can do. He can do things only God can do. We see how Jesus has omnipotence, how he has power over all things. In Matthew 8, when there is this storm, and what does Jesus do? He calms the storm because the wind and the waves obey him. They recognize the very person who created them. Or in Matthew 14, when Jesus multiplies fish and loaves. Or in John 2, when he turns water into wine. He really has true power over all things. We see how Jesus is omniscient, how he knows all things. In Mark 2, he knows people's thoughts. Or in John 10, he says that I am the good shepherd. I know those who are mine. But most strongly, I think we see his attribute of being eternal. He rose from the dead, and now he lives in heaven forever. I'm not familiar with anyone else who can do this. Uh, I think it's pretty amazing that Jesus raises from the dead. Maybe you say, well, you know, Lazarus, he died, and then he was raised again. But then he had to die again, which I just think, poor Lazarus. Everyone's like, woo, Lazarus rose again. I'm like, but then the guy had to die twice. That sounds horrible. But Jesus stayed alive forever. He's still alive So there's so much evidence in the scriptures that Jesus, he really is fully divine. So the church historically has used the word incarnation. You may have heard this word before to describe how Jesus, who is fully God, put on flesh to become fully man. I think the early church described it in this way, the Chalcedonian Creed. It's a product of uh, a council of the church. So we talked about this actually last week, how there was the Jerusalem council in, in Acts 15, and there was actually lots of other councils, if you're not familiar with some of these, and creeds that came out and decisions that came out of the early church. They would all gather together, and Mike was explaining how all kind of the, the big league guys come together and make these decisions, and this has kind of happened throughout church history, and this is one of the, the councils that have come together, and they came out with this Chalcedonian creed, and this is what it says. Our Lord Jesus Christ is both complete in divinity and complete in humanity, truly God and truly man, consisting in a rational soul and body. He is of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards to his humanity, like us in all respects, apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, he is begotten of the Father before the ages. But as regards his humanity, he was born for us and for our salvation. So I think a really helpful just summation of kind of some of this teaching of he's fully God and fully man for our sake. So there's some major errors. People have kind of gone astray from some of these things. Uh, I think there's a page in your book that kind of lists out a chart of here's all of the errors of confusing God's divinity, confusing his humanity, and the ways that people have rejected one or the other. And so even Arianism, people have denied the full deity of the Son, saying, you know, Jesus, he's just the greatest of all created beings, but he's not really God himself. 
uh, you may interact with Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, and they may say something like this, that Jesus is just, you know, a, a great prophet, or he's uh, the greatest of all humans, but he's not actually a part of the Trinity. And I think this is wrong. We, we, have, to, we have to affirm both things, what Scripture affirms that he is fully God and fully man. Uh, Canonicism says the son was divine, but he gave that up when he became a man. So he was divine before he became a man. He gave it up when he became a man, and somehow he's taken it back up again. And I think it's like he's a really good human. Uh, I think this is probably more common in our culture, but what I think it does is really minimizes and denies the mystery of the incarnation. There's a mystery in the incarnation. How is he 100% human and 100% God? Uh, there's, there's a mystery of that. We have to accept, and I think that this error denies that. I think some would deny the full humanity of the Son. They think that he's God, but he's not man. And I think that's why I went through so many even uh, examples of why he really was a man. He didn't just act like a man, but he really was a man. And even First John, the book of First John's pushing back against this when he says, I felt him with my very hands. That's what he's saying is, I really felt Jesus in the flesh. He was a man. We just want to believe what scripture says to be true. And scripture says both are true. So we believe both are true as well. All right. I, I was going to stop here. I think we can Maybe we've partnered up or people have partnered up and talked about a question. So if someone told you, I think Jesus is a great moral teacher, but he isn't God, how would you respond? So if you want to find someone around you, you can partner up with and talk about this. I think Jesus is a great moral teacher, but he isn't God. How would you respond? Yeah. Yeah. I love what I think, I think C.S. Lewis, he's saying he's either a, a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord of all creation. He can't just be a great moral teacher. Actually, it, it's interesting. I would think that he's not that great of a moral teacher if he's not God. He's probably just an insane person. Like if I stood up here and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't murder, but the only way through God <laughs> is through me. I think you would say, wow, you're crazy. You're an insane person. Really, if he's not God, uh, he doesn't have the right to forgive sin, but he also just sounds like a crazy person. I don't think I would listen to him. So I think the only, the only real response that we can, we can have to knowing uh, who Jesus is is to trust in him for salvation. I love that all we can do is just say, he is an incredible mediator, that he's fully God, that he really can accept us. He's fully man, that he can represent us to God. And all we have to do is just believe in him and worship him. So that's the person of the son, fully God and, and fully man. I want to kind of jump ships over to the offices of the son. I think one way to understand the identity of Christ is to understand how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the three Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. So God instituted these three offices to lead and mediate his presence with Israel. So you may even be familiar with some of these offices, maybe less familiar with others, but first was the prophet, the one who spoke for God and revealed his will to the people of God. So you may think of Moses, 
how he had these major life events, how there's a burning bush and he's told, go tell Pharaoh to do this, or how he goes up to Mount Sinai to receive these commandments from God, and then he mediates it between God and the people and goes down and tells them all that God says. I think there's lots of examples of prophet. We're probably most familiar with this in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Joel and Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Jonah, all of these Old Testament prophets, how they received from God and then they would tell to the people of God. But in the New Testament, we see how Christ is the greater prophet. He truly reveals God to us, not just through his words, but through his whole life. If you look at Hebrews 1.1, it says, long ago, At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. What this passage is saying is God used to speak through the prophets, but he no longer speaks through the prophets. He's spoken to us in a better way. God at one time spoke to people through visions and dreams and riddles and mouth-to-mouth communication, but now in a more clear way. We don't have to figure out what he's trying to say. We have his son, his son who's fulfilled all these prophecies, who all these prophecies were made about. Now he's spoken to us through him. And Jesus, he wasn't merely just a messenger of God. He doesn't come and say, thus says the Lord what I've received, here it is to you. Instead, in Matthew 5, he says, I say to you, because he was fully God himself. He spoke with authority. So he could come and and reveal God to us. I think, just a side note, I hear this all the time in evangelism and talking to people. People will say, man, I wish that God spoke to us like the people in the Old Testament through a burning bush. And then if he did that, I would believe in him. But what I think is interesting is it's, it's such a proud statement because that's not how he communicated to the people of Israel. That's not his main means of communicating. It was always mediated through these prophets. And so what would happen is God would speak to Moses and Moses would speak to the people. But what, why we shouldn't have a harder time believing this is we have a better revelation in Christ Jesus. Moses, at the end of the day, was a sinner. He sinned against God. He failed. He got angry. He murdered. But we have the words from Christ Jesus who we can trust forever. We have the scriptures which we can trust. We have a much better way to have access to God than through a burning bush. We have the Bible forever. And through his son, we see that he is a better prophet of the Lord. Second, God gave the office of priest to the nation of Israel, one who made atonement for the people to God through sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, the priest would offer sacrifices on the behalf of the people. They would offer prayer. They would offer praise on behalf of the people of Israel. And think how many requirements there were in the Old Testament to make sacrifices. All the rules of how to do it and when to do it and what animals to do it with. And the high priest was doing all these things to make atonement for the people of God so they could have access to God. And in the New Testament, Christ fulfills this office as our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus, he doesn't offer sacrifices of bulls and goats on our behalf, but he sacrifices himself on our behalf. 
He fulfilled the expectations of the Old Testament and became a perfect sacrifice for us, atoning for our sins. His perfect life and death and resurrection atones for all of our sins. We can see how this is, once again, so much better than that of the Old Testament. Even the high priest, he only could enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary where God dwelt once a year. And what happens when Jesus atones for for our sins? It says that the veil was torn from top to bottom so that all of us now have full, unhindered access to God, always through Jesus Christ. His sacrifice was a declaration that we can come to God through Christ and find relationship with him. He's a much better high priest. Lastly, God appointed the office of king to the nation of Israel, one who ruled the people with justice and love. You may even remember of David, uh, how he did this, but also how there's many bad examples in the Old Testament of bad kings to the nation of Israel, seeing how Saul's not a great leader of the people, ruthless. Even what's interesting is two generations after David, his grandson, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. They have this great schism. But we see in Christ how he fulfills this office as the true king. The Jews, they were looking for a political king of Israel. That's what they wanted. They thought Jesus would be some sort of political ruler over the nation. But that's not what he did. Even at his death, there was confusion in John 18. Pilate, he, he comes in and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Instead, we see how Jesus is king over all of the, the earth, over the church, and not just as a political ruler over Israel, but he is a better king. This is what Ephesians 1 says. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he puts all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So Jesus, he has authority as king over the church, over the world, over the universe. And one day all people are going to recognize that. So in summary, you can see how Christ unites these three offices together and fulfills each of them. Christ, the greater prophet, perfectly revealing God to us because he is God in the flesh. Christ, the greater priest, because he sacrificed himself on the cross to make atonement for our sins. Christ, the greater king, because he rules heaven and earth and his people. So that's kind of the offices of Christ. We have a few more minutes. I was going to ask one more question, and then we'll end with a little bit of application from this. But you guys can get in groups again. You can talk about this. How does understanding Jesus in these offices encourage your devotion and your faith in him. So why do these offices matter? And what, what do you think of them? You can talk about that as a group. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's, uh, it's really, I feel like interesting to look at these offices of Christ and see how all these things the, the Lord set up in the Old Testament, how Christ really does fulfill them in the New Testament. It really, makes me marvel at just the planning, the perfect planning of God and his redemptive history, how he does all these things through Israel and prophets, all leading really to how Christ, he's our hope. 
in all of these things. And so what are we called to do? What are we called to do with this information, I guess, as him as prophet, priest, and king? I think we're called to listen to Christ, the prophet. Jesus not only tells us that Jesus not only tells us the word of God, he is the word of God. His person is the divine revelation of God. So I think we can seek him and know him through the scriptures and the message he proclaims of his death. I think we're supposed to trust in Christ, the priest. We're supposed to trust in his sacrificial death on our behalf. While God's wrath is against our sin, Christ made atonement and made a way for us. And I I think we're supposed to obey Christ as king. We can't accept Jesus as just our savior and not follow him as Lord. Instead, he has total authority in our lives. So who is Jesus Christ? He is this God man who made a way for us to have access to God. We should worship him and love him and, and learn more about him. And so hopefully this class has helped us do that a little more. Let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your death on our behalf. God, we thank you for your planning from eternity past that uh, this perfect way of salvation through Christ in uniting his full human nature and full divine nature and him fulfilling these offices for our sake, Lord. We trust in Jesus today and don't trust in anything we do or bring to the table, but only in what Christ has done. And we worship you and love you and thank you for this time we have to learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for coming. And if you have any questions, you can ask Curtis and he'd love to answer them for you. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash you.